The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. Now, for our study this morning, we're going to take a look at a very familiar verse in the book of Romans, and that's Romans 8.28. that says, And we know that all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, I'd have to say that besides John 3.16, this may be the most loved and quoted promise in the New Testament. I mean, probably many of you have this verse memorized. And I think there's good reason for that, because life is so filled with trials and troubles, it's good to know that everything is being worked out according to the plan of a sovereign God. This verse is often taken out of context and key words are left out. I've heard it put like this, everything is going to work out in the end, or all things work together. We must remember the hermeneutical principle here that context is king. This verse didn't just drop out of the sky. It didn't come out of a fortune cookie. It needs to be studied in light of the context. Paul is writing to the saints at Rome during the transition period from the Old to the New Covenant. And the context here is the eschatological suffering of the transition saints. Let's back up to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. The Greek word here, pathoma, sufferings, is a term for suffering used particularly of persecution and for the suffering of Christ. In Hebrews 2.10, it's used of the suffering of Christ. And in 1 Peter 5.9, it's used of persecution. It talks about hostilities against the gospel. Hostilities against Christ. This is not talking about the suffering of this life. The suffering of being human. Paul was talking about the suffering of his time, the eschatological suffering of the transition period. It was persecution for the cause of Christ. Now, we see the same idea of suffering and glory in uh, 1 Peter 4.13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So this is not talking about the suffering of life, things like losing a parent or losing a child, losing a job that you had labored in for years, or rejection by a child that you had nurtured all your life, pain caused by disease, pain caused by injury. These sufferings are not that you get a cold, that you get sick, that you get mistreated at your job. This is specifically referring to the sufferings of Christ. Now Paul said that this suffering was of The present time. Time here is kairos. Now the Greek has two different words that we translate as time. One is chronos, from which we get chronological time. For example, like 11 o'clock, March 29th, 220. That's chronological. The other word, kairos, is translated as time, yet it has more to do with an epoch or an event or an age, a point of time in history. The present time is that epoch or junction of history. 
And what is the present time for Paul here? It is the age, the this age, of the transition period. Now, commenting on this verse, John MacArthur says this, he is talking about this present age. No, he was talking about his present age. Okay, not today's present age. He goes on to say he's talking about another age yet to come, the glory age. And frankly, that's basically how the Jews saw redemptive history unfolding. They saw time divided into two sections, the present age and the age which is to come, the present age and the age of the kingdom. I agree with what he says there other than the fact that he thinks he's still in the present age. All right, This present age is not the age we live in. We are living in the age to come. The Bible writers were living in the present age. We have eternal life now, people, and that was a blessing of the age to come. Look at Mark 10.30. Who will not receive a hundred now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lads, with persecutions, and then he says this, and in the age to come, eternal life. See, all through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age and the age to come. The New Testament writers lived in the age they called this age. To the New Testament writers, the age to come was future, but it was very near because this age, the age they lived in, was about to end. So Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed in us. Now notice that Paul says the glory is to be revealed. The Greek here is mellow. I know you're all familiar with mellow. It's used here. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, I'm not allowed to cough. <laughs> That's a bad sign. <laughs> it's used here with the infinitive. Whenever mellow in the present active indicative is combined with the infinitive, it's consistently translated about to. Paul told his first century audience that this glory is about to be revealed. The glory that Paul talks about was about to be. It wasn't something way off in the future. It was about to be revealed. The word revealed here, apocalypto, is the same stem from the title we get of the book of Revelation. It means the removal of a covering. What was about to be uncovered was God in their midst. So the term present time and is to be are time words in Greek. And they insist on imminency here. Paul expected this glorification of the saints to occur very soon within his lifetime. See, Paul is living in the last days and is soon expecting the revelation of the sons of God and the resurrection of the dead. So in other words, the Apostle is saying, you're going to have to suffer, but I want to support you in your suffering by reminding you that those sufferings are not worthy to be mentioned. Not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to be revealed in you. Paul is talking about the eschatological sufferings of the first century saints. So, a question we all have to ask is, what about our sufferings? Well, Romans 8.18 is not a verse that speaks to us. So what does the Bible say about our suffering? Well, first of all, it tells us very clearly that suffering is part of life everybody's life. Everybody suffers to some degree. 
You know, you see those people and you think, oh, they don't really have any problems. Everybody is dealing with something, okay? Whether you see it, whether you don't see it. Some much more than others. Job 5, 6 and 7 said, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So he says suffering doesn't just grow out of the ground like weeds. It's established in the divine order of the world, just as it's established in the order of nature that sparks ascend as the fire goes up. Suffering for believers should drive them to Yahweh to trust Him to work through them. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9. Kath, would you give me a little coffee, please? <clears throat> My throat is dry. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. Thank you. So Paul says, we went through this suffering because God wanted us to see that we needed to rely not on our own individual strength, not on ourselves. We need suffering to keep us, to help us to trust in God. You know, people, I, I know you understand this, but the health wealth gospel is a lie right from hell. Suffering not wealth, is what drives us to God. Notice what Paul says about his suffering in 2 Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying, when I'm weak in myself, when I have no strength in myself, then I'm strong because I'm trusting in God. God controls all things, even your suffering. And so we are to trust Him in it. Romans 8.19 says, For the creation waits for the eager, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is the creation here? Well, the majority view here that Paul is talking about the physical creation. That's really hard to see that you know, when you read this in context of what he's talking about here. So, I don't think he's talking about the creation. I think Paul is talking about Israel. The context leads me to believe that he's talking about Israel. Israel is the creation. Now, the Greek word used here for creation is katesis, which occurs 20 times in the New Testament and can be translated as either creation or creature, depending on the context. At times it's used for the physical creation, but it's also at times used for mankind. Now, the 8th chapter of Romans discusses the role of the Spirit in setting believers free from the law to serve God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It compares the actions of those indwelt with the Spirit to those who do not have the Spirit. And in looking at the overall context, one would have to ask why Paul would interject an allegorical passage about the creation in a chapter that is otherwise devoted solely to a discussion of the role of the Spirit in the life of the believers versus unbelievers. Therefore, the overall context of the chapter suggests that Paul was not talking about a non-rational creation. This anxious longing and eager waiting was for the revealing of the sons of God. 
So they're looking for is for God to reveal who are the true sons of God. Who is true Israel? Now, in John 15.1, Yeshua says, I am the true vine. Now, we know Israel was God's vineyard. Israel was God's vine. And He's saying, I am the true vine. He is the true Israel. He's the Son of God. And all those, listen people, and only those who put their faith in Him can be called sons of God. It is the Christians who are the children of God. And in AD 70, God cast out the bondwoman and her sons, Galatians 4, and made it clear to all the world that those who believe in Yeshua, the Messiah, are the true and only the true sons of God. Please remember that it was the Jews who were the main instigators of persecution against the Christians throughout most of the first century. The Jews were saying that they were the true sons of God. Let's move on in our setting our context here. Verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now notice that Paul says, we wait for it. This is from the Greek word apekdekomai. Now the Greek word is made up of three different words put together. The word to receive which speaks of a welcoming and appropriating reception, such as is tendered to a friend who comes to visit. Um, the word off, speaking here of the withdrawal of one's attention from other objects, and the word out, used here in a perfect sense, which intensifies the already existing meaning of the word. So the composite word speaks of an attitude of intense yearning, of eager waiting for the coming of the Lord. They were waiting for the redemption of the body. They were still under the Old Covenant and its bondage, but they waited eagerly for it because it was near. Yeshua said to them, your redemption is drawing near. Now this Greek word, apakdekomai, is only used seven times in the New Testament, and every one of them is a reference to the second coming. Apakdekomai is used three times in Romans 8. They had the promise of redemption. They had the Holy Spirit as the guarantee, but they still waited for the consummation. They were hoping for it. And as he says, you don't hope for what you have. At least that's pretty foolish. I've got this, but I'm really hoping for it. No, you have it. You don't hope for it anymore. You enjoy it. Redemption was a hope to them. Until AD 70 and the consummation of all they were promised, they lived in this hope. The return of Christ was their blessed hope because all they hoped for would be fulfilled in His presence. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Christ. Grace was to be brought to them at that revelation. The, transi the transition period was an age of hope. They hoped for what they did not have yet. They hope for the completion of their redemption. Now, there are some preterists who think that everything was completed at the death of Christ in AD 30. They don't see a transition period. They don't see it already but not yet. Which I see is not a biblical position. There's 40 years of transition. The old is fading. The new is coming into position. Now, with that as the immediate context, 
Let's look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to this purpose. Now, understanding the context, we see that the all things has to do with their suffering as the body was being conformed to the image of Christ. God had determined, predetermined and predestined that they would be glorified and therefore everything that happens was working to that end. That is to say, their eternal glory is fixed. It is unalterable. Now, the good of which He speaks here is their glorification. They, not us, were being conformed to Christ's image. You know, Sometimes it seems like audience relevance robs us of our most precious promises. (laughs) And it doesn't really rob us, people, of anything. It might seem that way, but there's nothing more important than understanding the Bible in its context. And before you get discouraged, let me ask you this. Can we apply this verse? I believe we can, but I believe we first have to understand what it is saying, who it is talking to, and then we can apply it to ourselves. This verse is not written to us. We're not Romans. We're not in the first century. Paul wasn't writing this letter to us. But the truth that it teaches is the truth taught all throughout the Scripture. And we can cling to that. We can, I think, apply this to ourselves. I want you to look at how the New American Standard puts this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The NIV says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Different translations have interpreted this verse in different ways. Some saw God as the subject and have translated it, God causes, like the New American Standard does here. Others believe that all things is the subject and they render it all things God works as the NIV does. Here's what's interesting. There are actually eight different ways to translate these two readings. So it's a rather complicated textual problem. But here's the, here's the takeaway. All right, Whether the subject is God or the subject is all things, it's not critical to our understanding this text. Because in either case, the idea is that all things work together for good because of God's agency. All the versions mean basically that God is so supremely in charge of the world that all the things that happen to Christians are ordered in such a way that they serve our good. Let's break this verse down and see if we can understand its meaning and then if we can apply it to ourselves. Alright, he says, and we know, this verse starts with a conjunction and, and the thought is transitional. It ties into what Paul has been saying about suffering. It's not some new subject he's talking about here. The word know is from the Greek word ado, which means to have seen or perceived, hence to know. It suggests a fullness of knowledge. How do they know? They know from the revelation of God. Now the ESV says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. The New American Standard Bible says God causes all things to work together for good. The word causes that the New American uses, and work together, they're both the Greek word synergeo, which from which we get our word synergy. The term means to cooperate with, to work together, to help someone to obtain something, or to bring something about. 
So God is bringing something about. God works, he says, all things together. Now the context seems to indicate all kinds of suffering and persecution, but God truly does work everything together for the good of his saints. The word here for good is the word agathos, and it refers to what is morally good. The text does not say that all things are intrinsically good or pleasant. All things are not necessarily in themselves good. I think you know that. We know that. But God works them into good. Now that doesn't mean that He works toward our short-term happiness or delight. Okay, that's not the issue here. He works towards what is best for us, doing what is eternally good in us and for us. But in all experiences of life, even the most difficult and painful, God is still doing something good. Notice what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 24, 4 and 5. Then the word of Yahweh came to me. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. Now, Jeremiah receives a message from God that he's going to send the people into captivity into Babylon. And he says, I'm going to regard as good this exile. And he's saying, I have sent away. So God is doing this to the land of the Chaldeans. God is sending them into captivity. Now, being taken captive by a foreign power doesn't sound too good. We wouldn't like that. But God said it was for good. Look at what God says about Manasseh and his captivity. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and to the people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, Yahweh brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now, that doesn't sound good, does it? But notice the very next verse. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now, does his captivity sound good? It was definitely good for his spiritual life. And let me remind you people, that's the most important part of us, okay? Our spiritual life. And it was good for his spiritual life. Okay, so we ask, how about sin? Can God bring good out of sin? Absolutely. You know the story of Joseph? You remember how he was sold into captivity by his brothers? You know, they wanted to kill him, and then they changed their mind, and said so they sold him into the hands of the Midianites. He ultimately ends up in the hands of the Egyptians. And then you know the story how finally his brethren, Joseph, was put in charge down in Egypt. He became in charge of the whole place. He's storing up all this food. And he finally meets with his brothers because they have to go down there to get some food. And he unveils himself to them. And he weeps out loud. He falls on their neck. And he tells the story of his life. But he tells it from the divine perspective which is very interesting, I think. Genesis 45, and this is, this is an important text because three times in this text he says this. And now he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. So that's putting responsibility on them. Listen, you guys sold me here. This is something you did, and it was sin on your part. But watch, he says, 
for God sent me before you. So he's saying, you sent me, you sold me here, but God sent me here. And he sent me here to preserve life. In verse 7, he says it again. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Then he says it again in verse 8. He says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Three times, Joseph tells them that God sent him to Egypt. It wasn't them. Now, why did God send Joseph to Egypt? Well, he tells us in verse 7, to keep alive for you many survivors. Was it sin for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery? Yes, they hated him. They wanted, they wanted him dead. But God worked their sin for good. He actually worked their sin for their good to keep them alive. i got to figure out how to shut this. Sorry. For their good to keep them alive. So everybody benefited from their sin. Because God worked it together for good. And we looked last week at Jacob's cry of pain. I think it's an awesome verse, especially for us right now. Genesis 42:36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. He really was, but he didn't know it. Simeon is no more. And now you take Benjamin. All this has come against me. You know, I can't say that I blame him. The things didn't look good for this old guy. And I think you've probably been there. We've all probably been in a place in our life when this verse we say, all this has come against me. It just seems like total disaster. I remember 41 years ago, I contracted Guillain-Barre syndrome. I was given the swine flu shot because I was in the military. And I got Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a nerve disease. paralyzes the body. I was paralyzed from the neck down for a while. And I'll tell you, laying there in that hospital bed, when you can't move anything, basically, but your head, it gets really discouraging. But, you know, it didn't take me long to realize that the Lord had a plan for this. And I knew what was going on. The Lord was trying to get my attention. I was like Vanessa. God was speaking to me, and I'm saying, I, don't, I got my own plans, Lord. And He got my attention and kind of woke me up. So I understand now. I even understand, stood then. I wasn't in the hospital long until I realized what was going on. And I said, okay, God, you know, He can play pretty rough. So you might as well just do what he asked you to do. You know, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do what you want me to do, Lord. Let's go. Well, when their father died, their brothers thought, we're going to be in trouble now. Dad's dead. Joseph's really going to get us now. And so Joseph comforted them, and he says this. You know, Joseph is a picture of Christ. And you see all through this, you know, his love and his compassion and caring and, and understanding that God's in control of all these circumstances. In Genesis 50, 19 and 20, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, am I in the place of God? What does he mean by that? He's telling us, God does revenge. Okay, Revenge is mine, says the Lord. That's not Joseph's place. So he says, don't worry about that. I'm not in the place of God. I'm not going to try to get revenge on you. As for you, he said, you meant evil against me. He knew that. They did mean evil. But God meant it for good. That's an incredible verse. Genesis 50, 20 people is a verse that needs to be memorized. We need to understand that. People do things and they do mean it for our evil. Joseph's brothers did that to him because they hated him. They were jealous of him. They didn't 
want to do any good, but God meant what they did for good. It ended up putting Joseph in a place where he could take care of those very brothers who wanted to kill him. It's amazing. He worked it together for good. Every calamity, everything that happens to those who love God is meant for good. When the beautiful and pure Esther was taken into the harem of a godless Persian king, God was at work for good. When the Pope condemned Martin Luther, God was at work for good. When Charles Spurgeon suffered with attacks on his character, God was at work for good. Now, Bereans, please understand this. All things don't work together for good for everyone. There's a qualifier here in this verse that most people want to miss, okay? For those who love God. This promise, people, is only for people who love God. Now, who are those who love God? Well, Yeshua taught that love was demonstrated by obedience. John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do we love God? We love God by living in obedience to His commands that are outlined in Scripture. All believers are called to love God, but all believers do not do what He asks them to do. We've been seeing this in our study of 1 John. Remember that book we were looking at? 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John is saying that genuine love for God necessarily will show itself in observable love for others. Now, if you don't practice sacrificial, committed love for others, you are revealing that you really do not love God. Yeshua said the world could measure our status as disciples by the measure of our love for one another. He said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. To be a disciple is to abide in Christ. And that's what John is talking about in 1 John. He's talking about abiding in Christ. And when you abide, you will love. And they will know that we're His disciples be the love we show for one another. So both Yeshua and John taught that love for God was shown through obedience. Now, referring to Romans 8.28, one commentator writes this, The only thing that I have part in when it comes to having things work for the good is whether or not I love God. That's my responsibility in all this. Okay, you hear what he's saying? My responsibility is to love. So, all things working for good are all up to us in our obedience. We got to obey, and if we don't obey, then all things are not working together for good. What does that do to this promise? How is this promise encouraging, listen, if it's contingent on our obedience? Kind of wipes out all encouragement, or all encouragement from this, right? Now, in our study of 1 John, we've seen that love is marked by obedience, keeping the commands, loving fellow believers. John is referring to our practice there. He's telling, this is how you're going to live. And in practice, he tells us, many believers don't love God. They're not abiding. They're not living in obedience. So in practice, all believers don't love God. We've been seeing that in 1 John. 
But here's the issue here, people. I don't see Paul as talking about our practice here in Romans 8.28. And I'll try to prove that. Paul is talking here about our position. Okay, now this verse can be comforting. Positionally, all believers love God. Positionally, we meet all the requirements of the law when we trust in Christ. And what's the main requirement of the law? Love God. Okay, so we meet them in Christ. Look at Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is not a good translation. Okay? It's just not. I mean, you get the idea that, what from this verse, you get the idea that the, the Gentiles don't have the law, but by nature, naturally, they just do it. That's not what the verse says. Let's look at it in the CSB here, the Christian Standard Bible. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, you see the difference there? They do what the law demands. They're a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. Big difference. ESV says Gentiles by nature do what the law requires. The CSB says Gentiles don't naturally have the law. See, Gentiles don't have the law, but these Gentiles do the things of the law. How is it possible for Gentiles who don't have the law to do what the law commands? Anybody know? Okay, please get this because this is really important. It's possible for the Gentiles to do the law because these Gentiles are Christians. They have trusted Christ, and the requirement of the law is fulfilled in them. In the same way the Gentile Christian, who is physically uncircumcised, keeps the requirements of the law by faith in Yeshua, which shows that he has been circumcised in the heart, whenever someone believes the gospel, they are fulfilling Torah. Their faith fulfills the law. By having faith in Christ, the full requirement of the law are met in us. And therefore, we are righteous according to the obedience of the law. I have fully obeyed the law by faith in Christ. And my faith in Christ puts me in union with Christ, who fully met the law's requirements. Believers, if you've trusted Christ, you're a believer, you share all that Christ is and all that Christ has, And faith in Christ is obedience. And you have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in Christ. And we know that for those who love God, when Paul talks about those who love God, he's referring to the most basic command of Torah found in the Shema of Israel. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. According to the Babylonian Talmud, the Jewish boys were taught this biblical passage as soon as they could speak. This would be the first verse they would learn. This was probably the first portion from the Torah that Yeshua committed in memory. A devout Jew would recite this passage twice a day. Now understand this. 
when you trust in this one God, Yeshua, you are doing what Torah wanted. You ask a Jew, what is the summary of Torah? Sum it up. What's it saying? Well, you ask Yeshua, who was a Jew, that same question. They asked the rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And what did he say? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's it. And this is what Torah is all about, loving God. So all Christians love God positionally. But practically speaking, not all believers love Christ because they don't obey Him. 1 John is coming from a practical, abiding in Christ perspective. Paul is not. He's talking here about our position. He's talking about a positional love of Christ. And this is very clear from the qualifying phrase. He says, for those who are the called according to the purpose. See, in our verse in Romans 8, Paul gives the people of God a new epithet. He calls them God lovers. In other words, Christians are the true law keepers because they're the true Israel. Paul is simply giving us another phrase that parallels with you know, people, the saved or the redeemed or the justified. He's not defining a special category of Christians, which I think John does in 1 John, but rather all Christians. We see this clearly by the term called. This called is used of the golden chain of redemption in verse 30. And we see it's an unbroken chain. Believers are those effectually called out by the Gospel. Now the believer's love for God is ultimately due to God's purpose in calling them to salvation. The word called here is kletos. And it must be understood as an effectual call. The beneficiaries of this promise are those who once did not love God, but now love God. Because God Himself has called them effectually from the darkness to the light, from unbelief to faith, from death to life. He has planted within them a love for Himself. The effectual call of God is the new covenant fulfillment of the promise of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Now watch this. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. What is the purpose of the circumcision? So that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. God put in them a new heart. All the called are lovers of God. According to His purpose, He says. Now what is Paul's reason for adding this phrase? I think it was to make perfectly clear that the call of God originates in God's purpose, not ours. The call of God is not a response to anything we purpose to do. God has His own high and holy purpose that governs whom He calls. His call accords with these purposes, not with ours. The word purpose here is from the Greek word prothesis, which means to plan in advance... And it comes to mean that which is planned or purposed in advance. Purpose means an intelligent decision which the will is bent to accomplish. God has two purposes. Our good and His glory. And we can see the force of this little phrase according to His purpose if we look at the one other place in Romans where this word occurs. Romans 9-11. In the context... 
Paul is trying to show that not all Israelites are true Israelites. He says that in Romans 9, 6. Okay, they're not all Israel. You say, not all Israel. They're Israel. How can that be? Well, because there's true Israelites, those who trust Christ, and then there's just physical Israelites. And he's making that distinction. And he says, they're not all children of Abraham just because they descended from Abraham, verse 7. And the difference whether one is a true Israelite or a true child of Abraham depends on God's purpose and call not on man's. Notice verses 10 through 12. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob and Esau were in the same womb. They had the same father. They had done nothing good or evil. And God set His favor on Jacob and not Esau. Why? Why not wait until they grow up and see which one will choose Him? Why did God reveal His choice even before they were born? Well, verse 11 gives the answer. It uses the very words of Romans 8.28 when it says God's purpose of election would continue. That's not fatalism, as if there's a blind chance behind the things that happen to believers. It's the plan of a loving Father that makes the difference in the world, all the difference in the world between the doctrine of fatalism and the doctrine taught in the Word of God. This is what theologians call God's eternal decree. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Do all things in our lives work together for good, or was this just true of the transition saints? Well, God has a purpose in everything that happens to us as believers. Our lives are not the haphazard result of the moving of blind chance. All that comes to pass in our lives is according to the eternal plan of the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, great God and our Heavenly Father. Now, have you ever asked the question, why is this happening to me? You ever ask that question? People ask it, especially in a first world country. You know, everything, anything goes bad. Why is this happening to me? Why did I get a flat tire? Why did I bounce a check? You know, well, listen. It happened to you because it was the will of God. Okay? So you can mark that down. Now, God's moral will is revealed in Scripture. We want to know what God's moral will is. We pick up the Bible. We read it. We don't have to ask what is God's will. We know His moral will. Yeshua tells us that we are to love God and we're to love our neighbor. Our response to God's moral will is obedience. And as hard as obedience can be at times, I think that believers have a greater problem with God's sovereign will than His moral will. And here's why. We are to obey God's moral will as revealed in the Scriptures. But we are called to submit to God's sovereign will of providence. Sometimes that's very difficult. God's sovereign will involves everything that takes place in life. All events in time proceed from His plan and absolutely nothing takes place by chance. 
And the Christian who has a mature understanding and trust in God's sovereign plan is spiritually prepared for anything. He doesn't understand why he had to endure some difficulty, but he will know that his experience was part of the sovereign plan of an all-wise and all-loving God. And all of our why-does-this-happen-to-me questions must ultimately have the same answer. Our loving God, in His sovereign wisdom, willed it so. And His plan is perfect. Now, let's be honest. When circumstances don't go the way that we want them to, the way that we planned, we usually get upset. Would you say that's true? Get upset, I got a plan. and Well, this gets interrupted with God's plan, and we're like, God, come on now. If we believe that God controls every event in time, and if we believe that nothing happens apart from His sovereign plan, why do we let circumstances upset us? The answer to that question is this. We get upset by circumstances because our will conflicts with God's will. And we don't like God's plan. We want our way. Listen, believer, it is not only important that we live in obedience to God's moral will, it is also important that we live in submission to His will of providence. And that means whatever comes around. And that means whatever happens in your life, you can say, praise God. We say that, don't we? We say it when things, when God's plan lines up with ours, we say, praise God. God, you did a good job doing what I wanted you to. But when God's will conflicts with ours and providence doesn't go the way we like it, how, do you, how many Christians do you say, praise God in the midst of the storm? We usually cry out to God, but we're not usually praising Him in the midst of the storm. Wherever it is that we are going through, we may be sure that our Father has a loving purpose in it. You know, the situation we're going through right now is just weird. I mean, you know, with the virus and everything that's going on around it, personally, I'm way more concerned with the panic around it than the virus itself, okay? Viruses, we always have viruses. This panic is, and government overreach is, you know, I would say scaring me, but I keep going back to God's sovereign, okay? So this is, God's in control of this whole plan, all right? So don't be blaming our leaders. What we need to be doing is praying for our leaders. This is a critical time. Things are happening, and we need to be in prayer for them that God would grant them wisdom, that they would turn to Him as our forefathers used to do. But we need to learn to submit to God's providential will, even when we don't understand it, even when we don't like it. Let me give you a biblical illustration of a man who submitted to God's will of providence even when it meant tremendous pain to himself. Eli, the high priest of Israel. In 1 Samuel 3, we learn that God revealed to the young child Samuel that he was about to kill Eli's two sons for their sinfulness. So the next day, Samuel communicates this message to the aged priest. Now, As a father, it's kind of difficult to conceive of a more difficult message for a parent to receive. The message that children are going to suddenly be killed, that would be hard for a parent. That would be a huge trial. Yet this was the message brought to Eli. God saying, he's going to kill your sons. What was his response when he received these tragic words from Samuel? Anybody know what he said? 1 Samuel 3.18 So Samuel told him everything 
and hid nothing from him. In other words, he told him, your sons are going to die. And he says this, it's Yahweh. Let him do what seems good. People see, here's the thing. If you understand it's Yahweh, then you should be able to say, let him do what seems good, because whatever Yahweh does is right and just and holy and pure. This is a father response to God telling him his sons are going to be killed. Believers, that's submission. He knew God, and he trusted Him. He didn't argue with Him. He didn't try to talk Him out of it. He simply bowed to God's sovereign will and humble trust. Now let me ask you this, believers. When is the last time things went contrary to what you wanted, to what you had planned, and you said, it's Yahweh. Let Him do what seems good to Him. That's submission, people. People, if you don't believe that Romans 8.28 is a promise for us today, then what do you believe? In fate? Blind chance? The impersonal force of nature? Just Things just happen? No. God has a purpose in everything that happens to you. And our calling is to trust Him. The Bible says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. And we've gone over this many times, to know his name is to know his character. And you know, you'll get to know the Lord's character by spending time with him in the word of God. And the more you know his character, the more you can trust him. And the more you'll be able to submit to his providential will in your life, whatever it is. And so as we go through this storm together here, this virus, this quarantine, we need to learn to trust God in all of it. He's in control of germs, He's in control of viruses, He's in control of government, He controls it all, so we just need to rest in that control. Put our trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word today. Father, I pray this would be an encouragement to Your people that we would realize how good you are and how in control you are and just submit to your will of providence, Father. Give us the heart of Eli, Lord, to be willing to say, it's Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray you would teach us, Lord, through this trial we're dealing with here, through this trial of the virus, through this trial of the panic, through this trial of government overreach. Help us, Lord, to minister to other believers, to be used of you in a positive, encouraging way. Help us to put our focus on you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you for the privilege to be able to meet today and to share this with others, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen.